2: This is a crowd podcast.
1: We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
2: Hemingway. Eichmann. Stranger in a Strange Land. Dylan. Berlin. Bay of Pigs Invasion. Lawrence of Arabia. British Beetlemania. Ole Miss. John Glenn. Blast off!
3: Hello and welcome to episode 91 of We Didn't Start the Fire. A song that's become a podcast that's a history lesson about the biggest, strangest and most beautiful stories that shaped our world. I am Tom Fordyce.
2: I'm Katie Puckrick.
3: Katie School is out and Billy is once again in...
2: Tom, we're going to the moon! Well, we're not quite going to the moon, but we are going to outer space.
3: We'll get a really good view of the moon.
2: We'll get a great front row seat of the moon. And Billy does love the exterior of planet earth because we've explored it via space monkey we've explored it via sputnik can't get enough of that crazy stuff and today we're talking all about john glenn who is john glenn
3: john glenn katie is the first american man to orbit the earth he's one of the original seven mercury test pilots plucked from that program and he is probably one of the great all-american heroes of a certain genre for what he went on to do in his life he went back into space at 77 on the space shuttle which still blows my mind
2: uh you know you can't get enough of that funky stuff and of course he did start out as a fighter pilot he was a test pilot went on to be a senator i mean he kind of went on all the rides and that Dear listeners, is the extent of my knowledge of John Glenn. Thank you for listening. No, no. We have a guest who's going to tell us more. Dr. Kevin Fong, doctor and broadcaster. He's host of the podcast 13 Minutes to the Moon. This is quite critical at this juncture to announce that you used to work for NASA.
1: I did. I did. I spent a long time working uh, in Houston, Johnson Space Centre.
2: What did you get up to there?
1: All sorts of stuff. And and mostly, as you say, going on all the rides. And Johnson Space Centre in Houston is the home of Mission Control, the home of the astronaut training grounds and uh, it's got a lot of toys and a lot of it's like Disney World for adults so uh, <gasps> so I was there with medical operations group and we would look in how you kept the astronauts healthy and protected them when they were in space
2: so how did you nab that position you just had to be good at being a doctor guy but did you have to have any sort of space qualifications
1: I nabbed that particular position because I got to the end of my degree in medicine and I wanted to go to NASA and you know that's the thing that brought me into science that's the thing that inspired me to go into science the first oh. place space exploration I was one of those kids of that generation yeah so I wrote letters to NASA but a lot of letters wow. like a lot a lot a lot of letters
2: tester power
1: um no proper Shawshank Redemption full-on <laughs> mail bomb uh emails <laughs> the whole thing um and then one day I remember sitting at home and this letter came I, I remember I was sitting on the sofa the letter came through the letterbox my student flat drops on the mat and it's like this legal American envelope with NASA meatball on the corner <gasps> and I unwrapped it sort of you know Charlie in the chocolate factory type style yeah. and inside this letter that basically says stop writing and 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 Uh, but but uh. but you can come and spend some time (gasps) with us on this this internship uh, at johnson space center and i was like i'll pack my bags and going and and after that i just kept going back
2: all right that's all very interesting however can we just rewind did you say nasa meatball
1: yeah that's what they call the logo nasa meatball how can you not know that that's
3: like that's totally what it's called everyone knows that
2: well i know that now nasa meatball it sounds delicious
3: (laughs) so where should we start with john glenn then kevin because even right at the very start of his life this sort of idea of a a certain type of all-american hero is coming into shape so he is the sort of kid who makes toy planes out of Balsawood, He's the sort of kid who flies in a plane with his dad when he's eight and you can see the future trajectory of his life mapped out in front of him.
1: So he's at that generation where the world is changing really quickly and so when you read that story about him flying in a plane with his dad, his dad wasn't flying the plane. I guess they, I don't know what, what it was, whether it was like a barnstorm, a ride, you know, uh, uh, something like that. But he was clearly lit up by that technology and the possibility of the age as it's coming forwards. and i love that idea of him as a the all-american hero such a trope isn't it but he really was i mean he was everything you want to be and then you know that theme of him going on all the rides is absolutely true and i think that's what he just decides at that point it's like great ride i'm gonna go on all the rides from here on in and he really really does and so from there he goes to college doesn't interestingly i think he doesn't finish college because the war supervenes and then he joins the military and then from there on in, he seems to just find the hardest thing to do and just does it.
2: So he's in the Marines, right?
1: He, he, he joins the military. He's in the Marines. And then he becomes a naval aviator and goes out there. He's in World War II and flies these vehicles called the Corsairs, the F4Bs for the uh, uh, aviation aficionados. But the Corsairs are those, you know, those planes. You'll remember if you ever saw the film Battle for Midway. Those are those carrier landing propeller planes, beautiful and in this sort of ocean blue. So he flies those in combat, and then he goes on and he's on flying in combat in Korea, flying this plane called the Saber, which is the F86. And I say all this because. If you're a kid growing up at that time, all of the model kits you have are these. You get the Corsair, you get the Sabre. He's flying them. He's out there flying them. And and so, and so he keeps going and he keeps finding the next hardest thing. So amazing. And he doesn't just fly these things. He has an amazing military career flying in these things. It's incredible what he does. And, and there is that account of him, you know... He gets to Korea. He doesn't just fly normal altitude cruising missions. He's out there low and slow over the target, taking photos, getting shot to pieces. Uh. And so, yeah, so he is an impressive person from the get-go.
2: Nerves of steel. Is he an adrenaline junkie? I think you've got to say yes. Yeah. In
1: Korea, he... He gets to the war late, and and he, in the last, I think it's the last nine days or something of, of the war, he shoots down three MiG jet planes and is actually gutted because he doesn't shoot down five, which would have made him an ace. He's an adrenaline drunk, he's a performance junkie. He, right. he wants to be top of the tier, top of the ziggurat, as Tom Wolfe would have said.
3: Mm. I like the fact that his nickname, Katie, in this period was apparently Magnet Ass because
2: <laughs> he was shot
3: up so many times. All right. He just attracted so much enemy fire and would we'll just crack on regardless.
1: I think that speaks <laughs> to him, right, and the way that he flew and how you know, fierce he was in getting into the fight and doing these things. So his military career was singularly impressive and he's always flying the edge of the envelope technology, right? And I think that's important to see him in that context. He gets into a plane with his dad and then he's flying the best of the World War II fighters and he's flying the best of the Korean war fighters and he keeps going. You think, well, you fly in the Korean War, what could be worse than that? But the test pilots, when he flew at Pax River, very famous test pilot school in the United States, the word is test, but, but there was a lot of failure and they lost a lot of pilots. And in fact, at the peak, I think the peak of the test pilot program, they were losing a pilot. I think the figure was something like one pilot every couple of weeks, right? Mm. So so this is quite a thing to sign up to.
3: So people may be familiar with this period if they have either read the Tom Wolfe book, The Right Stuff, or seen the film from the early 80s. Katie, you haven't seen the film, which no. staggers me slightly because it's right in your sweet spot. But yeah. is that, for people who've either read the book or watched the film, Kevin, does that give us a realistic portrayal of what life was like for... For people like John Glenn? I mean,
1: you've got a treat coming if you haven't read yeah. that book or watch the film, you've got to do both. Right. Uh, the opening scene of, of the book is all of these military wives forming this procession and going along to this this newly widowed wife of, of a test pilot who's just creamed into the desert and been killed. And that is just a ritual that happens so often that they kind of know what happens and the phones start ringing and then you all go around and comfort this person. So yes incredibly dangerous time, incredibly difficult time, and and this environment where you're just immersed in risk.
2: So tell us what Project Mercury is.
1: Project Mercury is the United States' first program to try and get people into space. And you have to understand what this is. This isn't just some, let's invent some expensive fairground ride for the sake of it. This is human space exploration as a surrogate battlefield for nuclear war. Okay, so what you're saying is if we can build rockets that are good enough to put a 70, 80 kilogram man into space, we can put a 70, 80 kilogram warhead into space. And if we can do that accurately, then we can do the nuclear weapons accurately. So the stakes are high and, you know, there's this weird poetry to it where you take the knights of the Cold War, these these single seat fighter jocks, and you stick them in the capsules of these rockets. It's a time of enormous competition with the Soviet Union because the United States are behind, and uh, you've covered Sputnik right earlier on in this. So, so Sputnik was a scar in, in sort of the consciousness of the American public. It showed that the the Russians were perhaps not as far behind as they hoped or thought, and now you've got to even the score. And yet, then Gagarin goes, and Gagarin is as much as Glenn is the All American hero. Oh my God! Like Gagarin is the the Soviet <laughs> hero, literal hero of the Soviet Union, and he's everything. Gagarin goes into space in 61 and goes around the Earth and gets home, hero of the Soviet Union. The United States' reply to that is with Alan Shepard. He's the first American in space, but he does not go round the Earth. He goes up and he comes down, and it's big and it's risky, but it's not a reply. And so it's not until Glenn in 62 that they even the score, and that is why, even though Glenn is not the first... American in space he is revered as such a hero he's the first person
3: to put the equalizer in the back of the net and why does he get chosen for that mission of those seven because you've got different characters in there some of them have also had that test pilot background you've got a few wilder characters why is it that Glenn gets the nod because he's not young at this point and he's not the ideal physical build is he He's, he's slightly bigger than you'd want a man to be who has to squeeze into that tiny capsule he he
1: absolutely is. So so they have a height restriction of five foot eleven, and and that's the only hard requirement really. But the Mercury Seven are there are very few carders of people who are truly truly elite. But that Seven are elite, and you can talk about all of them forever. And amongst that, Glenn is sort of first amongst equals on 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 that footing. He's he's incredible. He's known to be. From his military record an incredible pilot his time in test pilot amazing Uh, and he's also supremely fit apparently in in the selection he's chosen partly for that but the mission assignments at that time are kind of fairly random so possibly his ticket just came up but they would have had his eye on him as a really competent aviator
2: And what kind of pressure was on these astronauts in the the Mercury project? Because, you know, the way you've set it up, this is U.S. national pride at stake. And, you know, the U.S. is jousting with the Soviets. And, you know, we need that propaganda win. So do you think that these guys felt that?
1: Absolutely. They would have understood that. And they would have understood that as their role. And I think they took that very seriously. But they're there to fly vehicles. And there's enormous pressure for them to get there the clock is ticking and there's only so much time for them to stay in the game and and they've been watching the test articles the test rockets explode on the pad in front of them oh. I, think, I think is it alan shepard i think there's that report that alan shepard watches one of the one of the rockets just you know they're, they're watching it from the viewing gallery at the cape by the beach and this whole thing just explodes with nobody in it with nobody in okay. it. with nobody in it and shepard turns around riley to the rest of the team and goes well i glad they got that out of the way <laughs> can't do an American accent there's an enormous pressure and they they have no illusions about the risk
3: what does this rocket slash capsule look like kevin if katie and i were standing there looking at this fast construction what would we see
1: yeah it's interesting you use that word vast because it wasn't fast so the Was mercury it? seven rockets were small and and it's funny because when you go to johnson space center one of the first things you see is the saturn V rocket laid out on the lawn and it's like about uh, i don't know 100, 150 meters long as it's laid out as you know it's laid out in sections later you see the Mercury rocket and if you've never seen it before you're like is that what is that is that like a model or a toy because yeah you know huh. it, it's the sort of thing that you can get into without a lift you know a, a tall ladder might get to the top of it type thing and on the top is this tiny capsule you know this thing that is like the free space inside it is really literally like that of an old telephone box oh. uh, and and so this thing doesn't actually look like rockets that we understand them it's not this vast, towering structure you know it's this sort of you know sleek looking rocket but it's not on the scale because the, the rockets that we see most often are shuttle and and the saturn V. and these things are sort of hundreds of feet high the mercury was not that
2: according to author tom Wolfe, who wrote the right stuff he considered that glenn had the rightest stuff out of all the right stuff, astronauts. He wrote that Glenn, quote, came out of it as tops among seven very fair-haired boys. He had the hottest record as a pilot. He was the most quotable, the most photogenic, and the lone marine. Was there competition amongst the astronauts in this program for, like, who was the hardest, who was the biggest honcho? Oh, yeah. I,
1: and And actually... That's all that book is about. It's not really about spaceflight. It is about the battle for the top of the ziggurat. It's about who's top dog. And that's all you're thinking. And whenever you get into every classroom, that's all you're thinking. Who do I need to beat to be at the top? So yeah, there was competition. I I remember I I interviewed Walt Cunningham, who was uh, uh, Apollo 7 astronaut. And I remember saying... Uh, you know, was there was there a bit of friendly competition between you guys? And said nobody said it was friendly, and 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 they absolutely were looking over their shoulders every time they wanted the top spot. It, it to be second was to be nothing.
2: I'm curious about astronaut culture because, on the one hand, they have to be these stoic, steely-eyed, chiseled-jawed individuals that just stick to the rules and do their mission but how do they let their hair down like what do they is there some kind of machismo or some kind of one-upmanship or sort of roister doistering that goes on behind the scenes
1: when you talk about astronauts like you know we've had you know half a century of space flight more than that now and the mercury 7 are not what the modern astronaut core is the modern astronaut core You know, it's a bit of a university canvas all types. There's the sports jocks, there's the scientists, there's the geniuses. It's like the the breakfast club. It's the breakfast club in space, and it's not really quite that varied. But, you know, it's much more of a cross-section now. Whereas back then, you had to be a single-seat fighter jock, and that's what they wanted. And uh, I think they also did a lot of letting their hair down. But they were, at heart, drawn from the same tribe, which is chisel jawed military, and so they had that in common. So there definitely was a monoculture At that time, that's not how it is now. Now we've got proper diversity, at least in the in the United States, uh, American
3: astronaut corps. And Glenn is very much a one woman man. He meets his future wife Annie when he's two years old, when he's a toddler. Yeah, no, I I I love
1: that story. (laughs) And and there's that report that he says he doesn't remember a time when they didn't know each other. Hmm. So you know, I, I don't think they all had. Very stable relationships, but but there's more than one that has that lifetime enduring relationship, and the one that sticks out in my mind is Jim Lovell, who I spent three days talking to. Uh, I also talked to his wife Marilyn Lovell, and they are like school sweethearts mm. all the way through. I don't know whether it's the sort of military thing or whatever, but they're they're he's not the only one who has that sort of enduring faith.
2: You know what it is, Kevin, when you are setting sail for outer space. You want to know that there's a nice lady waiting for you back at home. <laughs> so you want someone to stick around. I think you want to keep that marriage going.
1: Or you've found someone who cuz it's awful for whoever whoever's left on the ground, man or woman you fly in space, whoever you leave on the ground, yeah. wife, husband, kids, it's awful for them. So, I don't know. I think I think to, in many ways the people who are left on the ground have got more demands on having the right
3: stuff than the people who fly in space. <laughs> when I think about Glenn's bravery Kevin one of the startling things for me is the number of delays there are to Friendship 7 taking off, there's the point where he's in the capsule, he thinks this is the day and there's what half an hour to go until lift off and then the plug is pulled and from my perspective as a man who would never in a million years be able to do what he did, I think I find that detail almost the most frightening of all, you would be ready and then the rug would be pulled
1: I know. and I, I mean, I've seen that because I've been to a few launches uh, now out of the Cape of Shuttle, uh, and we're seeing it now with the launch of SLS, which has been cancelled loads and loads of times. That's the bit I find hardest to get my head around, right? The idea that you would suit up, you get out, you walk out, wave at the crowds, get in the Astro van, drive out to the pad, sit on top, have the countdown going, and then go... Uh, we're scrubbing, we going home today. Uh, I just don't know how you... That emotional roller coaster, right? And
3: some of these delays make sense because it's, it's bad weather. I can imagine John Glenn looking up at the cloudy skies and thinking, OK, we can't go today. Some of the delays are altogether more frightening. There's fuel tank leaks.
1: Absolutely. And, I mean, Florida... In many ways, I mean, it's chosen because it's quite far south. So so basically, when you're launching from space, you try and use some of the Earth's rotational energy to launch, right? And so the Earth moves faster the closer you are to the oh. equator. That's why you try and launch as close to the equator as possible, if you can. But it's in many ways a dreadful place to lift from because the weather there, if you've ever been there, there's lots of tropical storms coming in. There's lots of thunder, there's lots of lightning, there's lots of rain. And, you know, if you're sticking... Rocket fuel and liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen in these rockets, as some of the rockets had, having lightning around is not great. So, yeah, there are lots of reasons that you may not want to fly on any given day. And it's all safety. You don't want to go and wipe out an astronaut because in this propaganda war they're in, that's a disaster.
3: OK, so when liftoff finally happens, Kevin, what does John Glenn experience? So I think those launches were pretty
1: fierce. I think you've got a lot of vibration going on and you've got a lot of acceleration going on. This is a relatively small capsule with a lot of power underneath it. You're sat in a way where the G-force, you know, that famous G-force that everyone talks about feeling, you know, is is taken it depends on which axis you take it. In this case, you take it through your chest, so front to back, like it's like a sort of spear going through your chest from the front. Ooh. And it's sort of it's like someone sitting on your chest. And so, have
2: you ever felt it?
1: Uh, I have, because I've spun on it. Like I said, I went on all the rides <laughs> when I was out. So I've been on the centrifuges, I've been on the vomit comet, I've been weightless. I just haven't gone to space yet. And um, it's like proper proper force. And you know, you struggle to breathe, you struggle to move your ha- arms out uh, out of your position. So you have to understand when you see anything like this. They're not experiencing it like we experience it. It's not like a voyeur. All they're sitting there is thinking, uh, I know all the, the way this thing is built, I understand the systems, I'm really hoping that it all works. And, and in a way, they're not in control. It's really interesting, I think, because for people who are the ultimate control freak possibly, you know, the people who control every aspect of their performance flying a plane... During that launch, they're very much out of the loop. You know, there are things they can do if things go wrong, perhaps. But mostly the story is either the engineering goes right and you live or the engineering goes wrong and you don't. And I think they know that. And so I can I can imagine it being, for ordinary people, an extremely nerve-wracking experience. I think for them, they're quite task-focused. So even if you ask them, they'd, they'd say, well, I was focused on the job. They're never going to admit to anything else.
2: And, of course, the job is just kind of sitting there and uh, waiting for the G-force to ease up, presumably once they get out of gravity.
1: That that's right. You know, he's getting to space, and space is not as far away as you think, right? So, so space station sits up at about two hundred and forty miles. Glenn actually is only going to get to about one hundred and sixty miles odd up into space, and they always say that the the first one hundred and sixty miles or so is the most dangerous one hundred and sixty miles, because that's where all the energy is. That's where you're going from naught to seventeen thousand miles an hour over a period of a few minutes. And all that time, you're hostage to the science and the technology and this bleeding edge of everything that science, technology and engineering of that age had to offer. You know, you're riding it right there. You are betting your life literally that it's going to work. So there's got a whole room full of people monitoring the systems and he's hoping to hear those calls that say everything's nominal, that word nominal, normal, it's all okay. But also on his mind is, what am I going to do if they say it's off nominal? What, do, what actions do I need to do to help my escape from this thing? The technology's in the driving seat, mission controller in the driving seat. If things go wrong, he'll have to play his part. And I think that that's what goes through their minds.
2: So there he is in outer space. Wee! He's saying, this is fun! I'm loving it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly <laughs> how he emoted at the time. I, th- so so there's an interesting thing, isn't it, that these guys are test pilots, and the whole character of a test pilot is they're supposed to sit in a new experimental fighter jet and sit around at you know, the speed of sound going, oh, that's interesting, the starboard engine has failed. Oh, that's interesting, the poor <laughs> engine has burst into flames. Oh, that's interesting, the whole thing's falling apart. And they're meant to narrate this thing, and so... If you're the sort of person who gets quite emotional about anything (laughs) you don't make a good test pilot and i think Uh. to a degree that is their experience of orbiting the earth although they are touched by it and you talk to all of them and that spectacle of the earth from space i don't think i've ever met anyone who doesn't go wow Uh, you know and i've i know a lot of astronauts and And they all say that thing of looking down on a borderless globe is just, you know, uh, an almost religious experience for many of them. Uh,
2: So it's a bit surplus to requirements to go, dude, this is awesome.
3: Yeah, well, you you can do that. It's likely you will never fly in space ever again. (laughs) He does experience things Kevin that he doesn't expect to experience one of these being the mysterious fireflies he looks out of the window and sees what he thinks are fireflies now if you're John Glenn you're a man of logic and science this must have freaked the hell out of him
1: they're not quite scientists, but they're very scientific and rational in their approach to things. So you see something like that and you're immediately trying to say, you're not going, oh, isn't that pretty? You're thinking, what is that? Is this something I need to worry about? Is this something I can analyse as a phenomenon that is not consequential, but might be useful? The Fireflies instance, is that where it's actually just him voiding the urine off of the vehicle? I think is it's that- ice crystals coming off
2: Voiding something? the urine? Wait a minute. Let's not so, so, let's so, let's so, skate over that, Tom. <laughs> what is so this, I, I, Kevin?
1: Now, this I don't know about Mercury. I'm not sure. I don't think they did have a system for f- dumping the potty overboard. They did have it on Apollo, and it was like a famous joke, you know, that they had when they... Because as soon as they dump the urine, it all freezes in space and floats off as lovely golden crystals. Uh. And, and actually, I don't know that detail of the mission. So here's the thing. This thing is so new. It's not the space flight is routine now so much that it was utterly unknown. Well, he's still
2: a test pilot, in effect.
1: He's a test pilot, but test pilots fly into a known sky. Okay. He's flying an unknown vehicle into an unknown sky. And he doesn't know what's normal and what's abnormal. He doesn't know when he's experiencing something, if that's like... Oh, that's interesting. Or oh, that's going to be the last thing you ever experiences. <laughs> right. And and so this is the whole thing. And at the same time, you're juggling all these tasks that you've got to juggle. Yeah. And so um, although we all think you'll be there with your nose up to the window going, oh, I think that's Greece. Oh, I think that's Russia. <laughs> Actually, I think there was very little time for that. I think you're so task loaded. You're not thinking that.
2: So was it smooth sailing for him as he zooms around the Earth three times? What happens? It's
1: not really smooth sailing. And, and part of this is him trying to open the door to orbital spaceflight for the rest of his astronaut Carter. He's all in automatics, right? So this thing is mostly built so it can fly itself. In fact, that was one of the things that Chuck Yeager, the famous test pilot Chuck Yeager, hated about the space program. It's like, you weren't really flying. So one of the things they wanted was to check out whether or not if the automatics failed, you could manually pilot this thing uh, and so they have a little bit of the flight where for 20 minutes or so or, or some short period of time he's supposed to take control and roll it around with the thrusters a bit only the automatics don't kick back in so having uh. <laughs> <laughs> having done this experiment to work out if he can rescue himself with manual control he then has to rescue himself with the manual control oh. and so he ends up flying it like on his own in manual mode for quite a lot of the flights um, which... You know, again, he takes in the stride. That sort of failure, I think, to a test pilot is a gain. To me, you, any of us in this room, that's like, oh, wow, well, I think I'm about to die now. To them, it's like, <laughs> it's just a failure. And I, I would say it's
3: not, oh, wow, I'm about to die now. I'd say it's about, oh, my <laughs> God, I'm about to die now.
2: So uh, how fast was he going as he was zooming through outer space?
1: So you need to go pretty fast because I mean, the whole thing about orbital space flight is, it's a really weird thing of physics in that, if you chuck something, it wants to go into an orbit, the problem is that the Earth gets in the way, so if you chuck it, the whole it's really simple in concept basically so the harder you chuck something the further it goes before it the Earth gets in the way of the curve of its orbit. So if you chuck something fast enough, then it just keeps circling the Earth because the Earth's not in the way anymore. And that speed is around about 17,500 miles an hour. It's a little bit, I think it's a, probably a little bit lower at the altitude of his orbit. The space station's up there at 17,500 miles an hour. So, so he would have been that sort of number. And you know, this is as fast as human beings have ever moved in in the history of humanity right? yeah yeah it's gonna
2: blow your hair back
1: it's gonna blow your hair back and plenty more and and (laughs) and you know he's up there and moving and it's the energy that makes it dangerous and this is a lot of energy how does the world below react you know this is the days before true sort of rolling 24-hour news so you know there is some tracking of it i don't know how much was broadcast live actually because they there would have been massive concerns actually about whether or not he was going to survive it or not. So, so there's a lot of sort of, you know, news was gentler in pace then. So, so the story emerges more slowly and, and and all of those, so, you know, you can't imagine it now with a sort of micro blog updates and everything. But I, I I think that there would have been a, fraction of people who are aware of it live, and a lot of people for whom it was a dawning realization when they pick up the newspaper the next day.
2: Well, sure. And also, I'm wondering whether NASA and the American government are thinking, let's just kind of hold, let's hang fire until we're sure this thing is going to have a happy ending, because he had a little bit of a bumpy re-entry.
1: So there's a a great adage in spaceflight, which the hardest two things in all the spaceflight are starting and then stopping again. And so, you know, once he's in the cruise around the Earth, it, it's not plain sailing, but it's better than trying to thrust yourself into orbit and get up to the right speed. Then re-entry is bad because you've got the opposite problem. You've got all this energy that's got you into orbit and now you need to get rid of it. And the only way to get rid of it is basically to skate on the on the upper layers of the atmosphere and turn that speed into heat. That's literally what you're doing really. That All that velocity and that's how you slow yourself. There's no other way to trade it.
2: You're just kind of skidding. You're skidding on gases.
1: You, you, you kind of are. And the problem is, is that there's all sorts of instrumentation on the capsule. And one of the instruments, down in Mission Control, flashes up and says, "Uh, we think the heat shield may have got a bit detached.
2: Oopsies.
1: (laughs) That's like, that's major drama because it means you're fine up in space, but as soon as you start re-entering, that's going to go wrong Toasty, 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 toasty. And this thing comes in and it's heating up to thousands of degrees, you Mm. know, like, like hot as hell and enough to destroy the vehicle and the crew if not properly protected and the only protection you've got is this layer of heat shield Mm. this thing is designed to disintegrate as it hits the atmosphere and sort of burn up and sort of push that wall of heat away from you but they think in mission control there's a sensor that says "Ah, there's a bit of malfunction it may have detached it may have been damaged and they don't know what to do because they're like well if that's true he's going to die he's going to die when he re-enters do we tell him don't we tell him And in the end, I think they don't tell him. They decide to give him an instruction to... Keep one of the retro rocket packs. So the retro rocket pack is all very tinted, isn't it? So these 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 <laughs> packs that fire the rockets to try start slowing you down, so you dip back into the atmosphere. Instead of like jettisoning that, they say keep it on. Now this doesn't make any sense to go Right, he's
2: like that doesn't quite compute. What what's up here, guys?
1: That that's totally it. And it's a really interesting point this. But he's a good military man, and he knows what an order is. And so even though it makes no sense to him, he says fine, I'll go with it. Right. And the reason is, is they think that if he leaves that on, maybe it will kind of keep this heat shield in place. Mm. As he comes ripping through the atmosphere, you know, you talk about the unknown. He's the first person to re-enter at this sort of speed. And he's watching these great flaming chunks of heat. Well, retro rocket heat shield fly past his window. And again, you have that. Is this normal or <laughs> yeah. is this death now? <laughs> yeah. And, that's a rocky ride coming back in and that's i think where you pull the most g as you're decelerating hard the atmosphere all of that energy becoming heat you know it's behind you you're sitting with your back to it is that like
2: a reverse facelift is that like all of the skin on your head is just mushed and you look like a wrinkly prune
1: probably i hadn't really thought about it that way but yeah it definitely would go the wrong way definitely wouldn't stretch your face yeah so maybe yeah i've I'm not sure there's any good camera footage of that. But, but face. It, 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 yeah, epic raisin i quite like that. I need to search that up now. Um, uh, but they're, they're coming in and, you know, this is the most violent bit. He knows it's the most dangerous bit. He's seeing great flaming chunks go past him. This is proper full-on plunge into the unknown, bet my life on this technology. And so, yeah, incredible, really, incredible. And
2: so he does make it through, but I like this detail, that he had a note that he carried, and the note read, I'm a stranger. I come in peace. Take me to your leader and there will be a massive reward for you in eternity. What?
1: So I, I love that. And in fact, the first time I read that note, I thought, oh, that's like his joke. Like, that's that's what he shows when he... But it's note's serious because it's written in several languages. And what, who's
2: that. supposed to read that? Is an alien reading this note or somebody where he lands randomly? Well, in...
1: that, that's the whole thing, right? Is, is that uh, when I first read it, I thought, is that like a joke note to a prospective yeah. alien? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but it, it's not. It's because this technology is so uncertain he's going around the earth and he's orbiting the earth you know every 90 minutes or so he doesn't know where he's going to come down right the technology may not work it may work and get him through the atmosphere but instead of being you know in the Atlantic Ocean he might be in the Pacific he might be anywhere he might be in Cambodia he might be in Vienna he might be
3: anywhere
2: I'm just wondering how they can back up this massive reward in eternity my
3: thinking Katie is like if I were to rewrite that yeah I mean first of all we've got to take me to your leader they may be the leader already Okay? Yeah, yeah, So You That's probably insulting. need a clause in it. If you are not the leader, right. take me to your leader. And I agree, this massive reward for you in eternity. I would
2: overpromised.
3: Pro- well, I would, I would say, forget about eternity. I'll deliver it next week. Right. I think. Well, I,
1: I think like it's deliberate, massive overpromise, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think. I think at that point you're just like hell. Really,
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> so he splashes down. He's 800 miles southeast of Cape Canaveral. There is a U.S. Navy vessel there, very, very fast. I like the fact. That when they fish him out, his first words are, "Oh my God, thanks, lads, I'm home." He says something on the lines of, "It's a little bit hot in there,"
1: <sighs> but but they were they were chosen not because they were poets, right? In fact, they were chosen for the opposite of that. They're chosen because they had to be the people who steely-eyed in the face of everything, and pretty emotionally well stable is the wrong word because they're more than stable.
2: Detached.
1: Detached is probably a better word. Look. He gets his kicks from flying propeller aircraft onto aircraft carriers, flying F-86 Sabres over Korea and shooting down other planes, being called magnet ass. he, 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 He is not an easily excitable person and this isn't going to change him.
2: I don't know that I'd want to be married to him for 76 years or however long his marriage lasted, but maybe that is the key to a good marriage, just being stoic.
3: Well, he described that flight, Katie, as the best day of his life. So I don't know how, as his wife, you would take that particular comment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So he was instantly a hero. He comes back to planet Earth. President John Kennedy awards him the Congressional Medal of Honor. Schools and streets around the United States were named after him. Of course, there was a ticker tape parade. I'm kind of interested in the fact that um, he then spoke to Congress at one point and uh, was vehemently opposed to women in space, putting it down to social order.
1: It's interesting that, isn't it? He's got a few contradictions in life, hasn't he? He's sort of this son of a plumber and a teacher. He has a military career. He becomes this great explorer, this thing that should be very romantic, but that he's very stoic about. And then you'd think that he'd be all about pushing frontiers. You'd think that he'd be all about, you know, what's the next boundary? You know, is it technical? Is it scientific? Is it social? But he doesn't at that point do that. He sort of suggests, well, only it's a man's job to be in space, which seems very counter to the rest of what you know about him. But I don't know, does that say more about the time? Does that say about him? It's
2: pretty retrograde because, uh, I mean, in the late 70s, he reportedly did support the space shuttle mission specialist Judith Resnick in her career. Yeah,
1: and Ju- Judy Resnick very famously, you know, sadly died on, on Challenger, but, you know, that whole period of shuttle and and all of those people who flew at that time, so he clearly had, you know, his own road to Damascus moment about this whole thing, but it's it's odd that he started off in that position.
3: He was also a huge supporter of a remarkable woman called Catherine Johnson, who was an outstanding mathematician, amongst other things. She was also a black American woman. And her role in this whole story, Kevin, is extraordinary, particularly for the time period we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really easy for us to sit here now and think, well, this gifted African-American woman is in the middle of the space program, and of course she would be. But that does not happen at that time. This is she she is working in a society where the entire structure of society and indeed its laws are arranged against her to prevent her. Uh, And yet she still prevails just through sheer force of brilliance on her part. And here's the thing. Glenn knows he is not the only person who's vital to the success of this mission, that he is the most visible part he's the tip of the spear and he's relying upon hundreds if not thousands of people on the ground and in particular Catherine Johnson and he knows that she is as vital to the mission as he is and he respects that and he champions her because of that
3: So Glenn asks for her personally to verify the numbers churned out by what would admittedly be a very early computer he also apparently refuses to fly unless she is the mathematician who checks the path that he's supposed to take
1: yeah and you know that's important he in his mind she is in his crew you know there's one person in the capsule but there's a much wider crew he doesn't care about the societal norms of the time he he wants the best people and katherine johnson black American woman is that person and that's why she's there. She's there on her merits. She's there because she's brilliant. and, And, you know, that in many ways is one of the most inspiring things about that entire period is that it is a vehicle for a lot of people, actually. There's quite a lot of sort of social progression you know you, you, you've you got people who are from from white working class backgrounds of course get propelled into the space program but you've also then got this this, this other story coming through of, of people like Katherine Johnson so yeah. it, it's impressive
2: that film Hidden Figures was all about her and her mm. cohort brilliant film yeah.
1: yeah absolutely
2: so let's talk about how he moved then into politics he was friends with the Kennedy of course it was Kennedy's initiative to start the the space program Glenn was the perfect embodiment of everything that Kennedy was initiating with, with the space race. And then after John F. Kennedy's assassination, Glenn became friends with Robert Kennedy and, in fact, was in Robert Kennedy's hotel room at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles the night that Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Let's talk about how the Kennedys encouraged or perhaps inspired Glenn to go into politics. Do you know about, about his path?
1: So he is a political instrument from the moment he lands on Earth successfully, the first American to orbit in space. And Kennedy latches onto him because this is the propaganda win. We're back. We're here. We've put one in the net. It's 1 1. We can keep going. And You know, we talk about that ticker tape parade, but, you know, he is received as a national hero because he's a national hero. And he is sucked into that world of politics. And I think that once exposed to it, he understands what it is and what advantage there is. And as a man who, I guess, thinks about what's the next most dangerous and difficult thing I can do, politics possibly occurs to him. There's another thing, which is that all astronauts, once they're flown in space, want one more thing, which is to fly in space again every time. And he really wants to, and he's never going to get to. He does not know that. And I, I, that must be awful, because at the time he did not know it. But what happened, as far as I understand, is that he's such a valuable propaganda asset that they're saying, if he launches on the next one and he dies, we squander all of that capital. Uh. right? So politics takes him out of the space program, and I think as he possibly, that dawn of realization comes, and he realizes he's on the ground now, and and he's also, you know, taken by the ideas of the Kennedys coming through a very tumultuous 1960s. He thinks, you know, this is the
3: new arena. He At one point, he is thinking about a run for president. He tries to be the Democratic nominee in 1984, I think before uh, Walter Mondale gets it. And then we have the extraordinary postscript to his great adventures. He's 77 years old. Uh, th- this, this is, for me... Kevin it's almost as mind-blowing as his first trip that at 77 years old he will go on the space shuttle Discovery and even seeing the pictures of him with his helmet off but in the rest of his spacesuit is quite shocking to see because of his age and I mean shocking not in a bad way but it's just you're used to seeing young fit virile people in spacesuits not 77 yards.
1: Well, again, I mean, Glenn, if Glenn was about anything at all, he was about pushing boundaries. And this is a story that's very dear to my heart, because this is kind of me catching up with myself. In 1997, I get my job at NASA as an intern, final year medical student. And the first thing they do is throw me this folder saying, we're thinking of running this mission where we want to send a 77-year-old man back to space. And you kind of know at this point who these people are. <laughs> uh, and, and, and And you're thinking, okay... I've come all this way. I'm at the heart of human spaceflight operations and now I'm doing elderly care medicine. This is this. Is. <laughs> but once you dug into it, it was really fascinating because a lot of the things that happen to you in spaceflight are the same things that happen to you when you age. And uh, so you lose muscle, your heart deconditions, you have problems with your balance. And so their worry was that he's already old and now we're going to make him even older physiologically. And is this going to be a deal? And so I spent quite a long time looking at that and, you know, I had a very tiny, tiny part contributing to that. But the best part of that for me was that I got to go to the Cape to watch him go. That was the first <gasps> shuttle launch I ever watched.
2: Wow! I didn't know your connection.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so, so John Glenn is literally the first task I was set by NASA, as just as an intern, as they were just sort of talking about it as a, as a sort of... It wasn't quite a, a theoretical concept because the mission was on the slate by that time, but they were thinking going... And I remember going down to the Cape in 1998, and like for the first time in a long time, crowds were thronging around the launch. People were sort of like that nostalgia of remembering him the first time he went, and yeah. so many people there. And I was very lucky, I was with the medical operations team there. So they got me in a flight suit <gasps> and they sat us at two miles. Did straight. they? Oh yeah, and, and you're, you're out there at two miles from the launch pad, oh, wow. so it was as close as anyone gets to be without being inside an armored car. And watching this thing go and it was amazing.
2: Oh I've got a nipple heart on. (laughs) So Glenn was so good at being a heroic figure. Kevin, what was his relationship with the role? Was he comfortable being a hero?
1: You don't put yourself in those positions if there's not some part of you that's sort of comfortable with being front and center. So I would imagine yes. I'm not sure he would have used the word hero but he certainly knew what he was and he certainly used that
3: to his advantage at every part in his life. Quite a few of the men who, after Glenn, would go further and land on the moon, Kevin, they found that the experience fundamentally changed them. That idea of looking back on the little blue dot, as Carl Sagan called it, changed the way they felt when they got home. How did Glenn change, if at all? Because he never left his wife. He was... Presbyterian, I think, till the end of his days. He was a man who believed in God. He doesn't seem to have gone through the same mental turmoil as some of the men who stood on the moon in future years went through.
1: Yeah. It's interesting, that whole thing and, and that whole idea that standing on the moon is such an enormous experience that it sort of fries your brain fundamentally. So uh, I think uh, Andrew Smith wrote a quite a good book about this called Moon Dust. It's a great book, isn't it? It's a yeah. great book. And his whole thesis on the whole thing is that it's not that doing these things changes you. Is The problem is that it allows you to be much more like yourself for the rest of your life than you ever should be allowed to be. And so whatever you were before, you just become more so. And it's kind of that thing you see right with rock stars and, and Hollywood stars when they get to the point where no one around them is going, that's a really bad idea. D- don't, don't do that. <laughs> and so I guess, again, that's probably testament to Glenn is that although he was probably in that position, he had enough of an internal guidance to kind of keep himself the right side of most things, I think.
3: It's the ultimate test pilot trip that, Katie, isn't it? You're the first American man to orbit the Earth. Can you plot a path through the rest of your life?
1: Yeah, well, very poetic, but very true, I
2: think. Well, he always had that take me to your leader note to just back (laughs) him up in case of trouble.
3: (laughs) Dr. Kevin Fong, it's been wonderful having you on We Didn't Start the Fire. I loved it. It's been an education but an entertainment as well. If people would like to hear more of you, they should, of course, listen to your wonderful podcast, 13 Minutes to the
1: Moon.
2: And before you go, Kevin, Magnet Ass was John Glenn's uh, nickname. What's your nickname? (laughs) Do
1: you know, I am well known actually in medicine for being very similar in terms of the amount of trouble i attract when i am on duty so uh, so yeah you should all feel a little bit nervous just sitting in the same room as me so uh, so yeah i think i think uh, I, th- I think i think my colleagues at work would probably prefer to be as a something other magnet but i think i think uh, yeah so i so i don't know i don't know
2: you're turning a little bit pink <laughs>
3: All that stuff, Katie, that we've heard about John Glenn, it makes me think that of all of those men chosen for the Mercury 7 program, he truly did have the right stuff.
2: Yeah, probably the rightest stuff. But,
3: Katie, and I say this quietly because I almost don't want to say it, do you think he would have been much fun to hang out
2: with? (sighs) When you get those uh, chiseled-jawed, steely-eyed dudes who have their eye in the prize or even outer space, or even a planet beyond ours. Yeah, I don't know if we get that much of a look in, and uh, if fun times would get that much of a look in. Although, I don't know, astronaut culture, when they take off their helmets and (laughs) ruffle their crew cuts, they could get a little cray-cray. (laughs)
3: If you would like another podcast to listen to, do make sure you check out Kevin's fantastic podcast, 13 Minutes to the Moon. And Katie, I believe you have a message to share with me from a listener called Claire.
2: Yes, this is what she says. I have a Peter O'Toole anecdote for you, courtesy of my dad. After listening to the Lawrence of Arabia episode, my son and I watched the movie and mentioned this to dad, who then described his experiences of playing cricket with Peter O'Toole. My dad is a former England cricketer who was captaining a celebrity team in a charity match back in the 1990s. He described his teammate O'Toole as quite an eccentric character whose cricket flannels were held in place with a necktie. Now, Tom, I call that stylish. I call that positively spritzatura. So she goes on to say he would move fielding positions of his own volition, totally ignoring my father's field placings and wasn't a particularly adept bowler. Despite these little foibles, it was an unforgettable experience for Dad to play on the same team as one of the 20th century's greatest movie icons. That is
3: a great story, and it's reflective of my character that I now desperately want to know who Claire's dad was, and I'm trying to work out who it might be.
2: (laughs) Oh, you sports nerd, you. If you have any guest
3: ideas or just something like Claire that you'd like to share with us, you can contact us on email. We are, as always, at fire, at crowdnetwork.co.uk, on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, we are at Spread that fire. Katie, um, bearing in mind we're talking about sport, I have extra good news to you because next week we're going to a sporty place again.
2: Oh, are we? I have to gird my loins. Is it going to be men with sticks (laughs) hitting rapidly firing missiles through the air or is it going to be men with big giant tiger paws smacking the daylights out of each other?
3: Fisticuffs Katie, we're going fisticuffs
2: Fisticuffs Punching Contest Liston Beats Patterson Ding ding Mm. Crowd Network
3: A place where you belong
4: Hello the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love, and listen to the French History Podcast today.
0: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates.
4: Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved.